Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles. Welcome back to my channel. Today's video is going to be yet another solved case for my Curious Case series. And today's video is actually from Tennessee in the United States. I'd just like to give a massive thank you to everyone Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Everyone who's been supporting the channel recently it's really made this current period of uncertainty a lot easier for me and I don't feel quite so alone so thank you everyone for supporting me. Not so long ago I set a target of getting 100,000 subscribers by my birthday and with all your support that goal is just out of reach. It's, it's, we're almost there. So thank you again, truly. If you're not already following me over on Twitter and Instagram, then be sure to go do that. My handle is at it's Joshua Miles on both Twitter and Instagram. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Sunday the 2nd of May 2004, in the small town of Greenville, Tennessee, was a day that would haunt its some 15,000 residents for decades to come. It was two weeks before 18-year-old Billy Jo Hensley's much-anticipated senior prom, and she was so beyond excited to close out her final year before going on to study her dream course at university. She was born on the 18th of December 1985 in Moseem, Green County, Tennessee, to parents Lena Hensley and Joe Hensley. Billy had in all three brothers and they were all really, really protective of her, just like any brothers are of their sister. She had studied mathematics for three years as well as science for four years at the North Green High School and she achieved a 3.4 grade point average at high school, which made her eligible to join the the National Honours Society. For those of you who aren't aware, the National Honours Society is a national organisation for high school students in the United States, which grants scholarships and is very prestigious, especially on a student's resume. Billy Joe had also played tennis for the Lady Huskies towards the beginning of her school career, and she was really, really good at it. She was very successful. Further to joining the National Honours Society, Billy also became an AIM scholar. An AIM scholar, or Achievement is Meaningful Scholar, is a program run in Greenville for Green County students, which is sponsored by local businesses and industries, which, as with the National Honor Society, looks very good on a student's resume. Billy Joe was the kind of student at school who was quiet and quite reserved. She kept her head down and worked hard on her studies. She was always respectful, never troublesome or rebellious. She was set to graduate from high school on the 21st of May, which was just a few weeks away. Sadly for Billy Joe Hensley, that otherwise peaceful Sunday in May would see her dreams, aspirations, and desires destroyed by someone who she loved, 
and cared for and trusted. In a case of senseless violence, homicide, marijuana and money, let's discuss the case of Billy Joe Hensley. I would usually at this point in the episode delve deep into who exactly Billy Joe Hensley was as a person, what her dreams were and what her aspirations were, though it appears that not much information is available publicly on the internet. I imagine this is likely due to the family wanting privacy and I want to respect that. Some names within this episode have been concealed or changed due to respect and out of privacy though I can assure you that those responsible for Billy's death will not be bound to the same aforementioned privacy and respect. On the evening of Sunday the 2nd of May 2004, at 8.22pm, police dispatchers in Greenville received a phone call from a concerned neighbour who had heard fighting earlier that day coming from the Hensley household. This neighbour in the evening of that Sunday decided that she would pop over to make sure that everything was okay after not hearing much commotion coming from the house for, for a number of hours. And when she got to the, to the neighbour's house, when she got to the Hensley household, she peered through the window which looked into the living room of the house and she saw what appeared to be a body underneath a sheet or a comforter. And unfortunately, this body had a pool of blood surrounding it. Police rushed to the house and discovered exactly what had been reported to them, a body lying in the middle of the living room floor, covered with a comforter. A preliminary examination determines that the body was that of a young woman's, and this young woman had sustained severe stab wounds, a multitude of stab wounds all over her body. The investigators began to search through the house to see if they could find any evidence as to who might be responsible, and they immediately noted that the basement door had appeared to have been forced open. Officers also found a container in the upstairs bathroom sink, as well as a jar in the bath of that bathroom, which contains a liquid that smelled similar to bleach. They also found a pair of latex gloves, which had been stained red, and they they were found next to the jar in the bathtub. A singular latex glove was also discovered under the body of the young woman. Immediately, the police began to fear for the lives and the safety and the well-being of the family that lived at that address. There were pictures of the Hensley family displayed throughout the house, but where were the parents or the brothers that were depicted in these images. Detectives, using state records, were able to obtain the cell phone number for the mother that lived at the address. Upon speaking with her over the phone, it became clear that she was in Kentucky with her boyfriend, who was identified to be the male fatherly figure in the photographs, playing bingo as they did quite often. She told the investigators that her daughter Billy Joe and her son Donnie should both be at home. The police determined that the deceased young woman that had been discovered at the property was highly likely to be the body of Billy Joe Hensley. But where was her 16-year-old brother Donnie? The detectives had been told by the mother that Donnie oftentimes hung out at his friend's auntie's house, and she had told them that he had said he would be hanging out with his friend that day. So, in an effort to ensure that Donnie hadn't also been murdered or kidnapped or something else by an unknown perpetrator in a suspected robbery gone wrong, the police detectives decided to go over to his friend's aunt's house 
to go see if he was okay. And this friend was called Hugh Alexander Williams. Not 40 minutes after the initial 911 call was made by the concerned neighbor, the police pulled into the drive of Hugh's auntie's home. On the drive was parked a car, and as the police walked up the drive past it, they heard somebody open the car door and get out. When they turned around, they saw Donny Hensley standing by the car door with his hands raised over his head. His friend Hugh Williams also came to the door of his aunt's property and surrendered to the police. Donny's actions of raising his hands above his head when he saw the police instead of asking why they were there immediately was deemed suspicious by the investigators. It showed that he knew why the police were there and it demonstrated that he thought he should be arrested. Subsequently, both Hugh and Donny were brought into the police station to undergo questioning. The police officers noted that it seemed as if Hugh had changed his clothes in a hurry as he was wearing his t-shirt backwards when he had been arrested. Detectives also found a burn pile at the side of Hugh's auntie's house. The officers asked Donny whether they needed to search the property any further and he replied by saying no. When asked to elaborate, Donnie said that he couldn't as he wanted to get his facts straight. Interestingly, on the drive to the police station, Donnie claims that he had killed his sister in an act of self-defense. I quote, Someone is choking you. You breathe out. You can't breathe back in. What the F are you supposed to do? God, I'm stronger though. Why didn't I just hit her in the stomach or head? After Hugh and Donnie were questioned, with Donnie maintaining his self-defense arguments, Hugh confessed to everything. So what exactly happened that Sunday in May 2004? A month prior to the brutal murder of Billy Joe Hensley, Donnie and Hugh, along with two other people who we'll get to in a moment, began discussing killing Billy, Billy's mother and Billy's mother's boyfriend. Donnie was convinced that by killing them, he would be able to break into the locked basement of the house where he lived and take some $15,000 in cash and marijuana that he believed Billy's mother's boyfriend had stashed away down there. He had promised to give Hugh $3,000 of this cash and $1,000 to the other two people. The other two people were 28-year-old Michael Sellers and 27-year-old Latonya Crockett. Both Michael and Latonya had been asked to be lookouts as the crime took place. Interestingly, Michael and Latonya had actually been in a relationship at the time of the crime, and Michael even had children from a previous relationship. On the morning of the 2nd of May 2004, Donnie phoned up Hugh and told him that today is the day, inferring that it was time to kill Donnie's family. Donnie had decided that it was time to commit this crime as his mother had gone with his mother's boyfriend to Kentucky to play bingo, so it was an optimal time for them to you know, break into the basement. This meant that they would only have to get rid of Donnie's 18-year-old sister, Billy Joe Hensley. Though Donnie did tell Hugh that upon his mother's and his mother's boyfriend's return from bingo, that they would kill them too. And so 28-year-old Michael and 27-year-old Latonya picked a then 17-year-old Hugh Williams up in their car before making their way over to pick up a then 16-year-old Donnie Hensley. The four of them drove to a nearby store to purchase some rubber gloves and a telephone card. They then collectively took some Valium pills and smoked some marijuana before Michael and Latonya dropped Hugh and Donnie back at the Hensley restaurant. 
residence. When they arrived, Hugh and Donnie went into Donnie's bedroom to plan the attack. They decided that they would lure Billy Joe out of her bedroom and then Donnie would attack her from behind with a 30-inch sword which he owned. And so they called Billy Joe out of her bedroom, pretending that they needed help with something downstairs. As she walked down the corridor, Donnie struck his own sister in the back of the neck with a 30-inch sword. The blow was so powerful that it knocked her down the stairs and into the living room where she fell to the floor, where Donnie began to stab her over and over again with the 30-inch sword. Though the sword was actually not sharp enough to subdue Billy Joe. Donnie asked Hugh to go up to his bedroom and fetch a hunting knife that he kept in there and bring it back down so they could finish off the attack. Upon Hugh's return, Donnie took this hunting knife and continued to stab Billy Joe over and over again. Throughout this, Billy Joe was screaming and begging for her life. She begged her younger brother to stop, screaming, why are you doing this to me? Donnie soon realized that he would be unable to finish off the attack on his own, so he asked Hugh to get a knife and join in. Hugh pulled a knife from his pocket and alongside Donnie, who had the hunting knife, joined in and stabbed Billy Joe repeatedly until Billy stopped moving and stopped uh, screaming. The pair then grabbed a comforter and covered Billy Joe's body with it before going up to the bathroom and cleaning the knives that they had used in the attacks, presumably using the bleach that would later be found by the police in those containers. Donnie and Hugh then placed the knives in a bathroom towel before bringing it downstairs and placing it by the door, ready to take with them when they left. Hugh then used the telephone card that they had previously purchased, and I believe he used the uh, Hensley residence landline phone to call his auntie. You see, the telephone card provided Hugh with a special phone number that he could ring from any phone, and then key in a unique PIN number on the back of the telephone card. After which, you're able to phone any number you wish, so long as you had credit on the telephone card. Some telephone cards require you to use a set payphone, though I don't believe that they bought one of those telephone cards in this case. It's also important to note that the use of one of these telephone cards practically makes the telephone call anonymous as it is next to impossible to track down where the call was made from and who made the call. Hugh contacted his auntie and asked her to then contact Michael and Latonya. His auntie happily obliged, thinking that he just wanted them to come pick them up, thinking nothing of it. And so Michael and Latonya drove over to the Hensley residence and arrived about 10 minutes after Hugh had contacted his auntie. Upon their arrival, the group decided that they would then break into the basement and retrieve the money and marijuana that that was allegedly stashed down there. After all, they had killed Billy Joe just so they could get access to this. However, after breaking into the basement, even after searching high and low, they were unable to locate the marijuana and money that Donnie had alleged was stored down there. When Michael learned of this, he immediately began to panic and cry. In an attempt to calm Michael down, Latonya told Hugh and Donnie that she would take him upstairs and out into some fresh air to try and, you know, 
um, calm him down and relieve the panic attack. Though, unbeknownst to Hugh and Donnie, what actually happened is Michael and Latonya got into their car and drove off, abandoning Hugh and Donnie at the crime scene. Donnie and Hugh were relying on this car as their means of escape from the crime scene, and now they had no means of escape. They had no way of transport, neither of them had cars or any way to drive. So, with the knives wrapped in a bathroom towel under their arms, they decided to start walking to the nearby home of their former bus driver to ask for a lift to uh, Hugh's aunt's house. And when they got to Hugh's aunt's house, they figured that they would try and figure out what to do next. On the walk to their former bus driver's home, they crossed over a bridge and decided to toss the butterfly knife and hunting knife and sword into the water below. Hugh would later confess that he didn't know what came of the 30-inch sword that Donnie had used in the attack. Hugh claimed to have last seen it at the house, but it wasn't recovered by police officers when they searched the Hensley household. When the pair arrived at their former bus driver's home and asked for a lift to Hugh's auntie's house, she happily obliged. They spun a story to her saying that they had been in a car with one of Hugh's cousins and got into an argument and then forced out of the car uh, with no way of getting back home so taking pity on them she said sure I'll take you to uh, your aunt's house and drop you off. The bus driver would later tell the courts that Hugh and Donnie appeared to be wearing wet clothing and Hugh had mud on his feet but there were no signs of blood on their clothes. After the pair were dropped off at Hugh's auntie's house they thanked their former bus driver and rushed into the house and quickly changed their clothes. They took the clothes they had been wearing to the side of the aunt's house and using gasoline set them alight in an attempt to destroy any forensic evidence that might still be on them. As the clothes burned, Donnie began to tell Hugh that he was thinking of ending his life as the heist had been unsuccessful and they had murdered his sister for no reason. I was unable to pinpoint exactly how and why Donnie got into the car on the driveway of the auntie's home but at some point he did do this. Perhaps he was intending to steal the car and drive off to escape, or maybe crash the car in an attempt to end his life. We may never know. Regardless, after the police showed up, both Hugh and Donnie were taken in to custody and for questioning. And then the following day on the Monday, they were both charged with homicide. When the police officers had arrived at the scene of the crime, and as previously mentioned, they discovered containers with bleach in them. They'd also discovered a bloody bathroom towel in the bathroom. Police further then ventured into the broken into basement to see what they could recover from there. They they discovered drug paraphernalia which was consistent with the kind of paraphernalia one might have when selling and distributing illegal substances. Small plastic bags, scales and hemostats which if you don't know is a surgical instrument. The most shocking thing in my opinion is what they discovered in the stove of the basement. They located bags of marijuana alongside rolls of cash. It seemed as if Hugh and Donnie simply hadn't looked hard enough in the basement for the bounty that they had committed the homicide over. After Hugh's confession, he took investigators to the bridge where he and Donnie had discarded the weapons used in the homicide. Using a large magnet attached to the extendable boom of a crane-like piece of equipment, the police, alongside the highway department, were able to recover weapons from the river successfully, though they were only able to recover Donnie's hunting knife and the 30-inch sword that had been used 
Hughes and the attacks. The whereabouts of Hughes' own knife is still unknown to this day. On the Wednesday following the arrests, Donnie was sent to undergo a mental evaluation at a hospital to determine whether he was suffering from any mental issues at the time of the crimes. It was found that he wasn't suffering from any major mental disorders or mental illness at the time. Meanwhile, Hugh was detained at a juvenile detention centre. It was ordered that Hugh must remain in custody until the trial. Importantly, transfer hearings were proposed for both the boys for the case to be transferred from juvenile court to the criminal courts so that they could be tried as adults in the case. And this was all due to the severity of the crimes. The transfer hearings took place on the 22nd of July 2004 and were completely closed, not allowing access to the public or the press. They concluded that due to the overwhelming amount of evidence against Donnie and Hugh, and due to the disturbing nature of the crime, that both Donnie and Hugh would be eligible to be tried as adults. The bail for both of them was set at 100,000 US dollars. The trial began on the 10th of May 2005, which coincidentally was the 18th birthday of Donnie Hensley. Hugh Williams had also turned 19 earlier that same year. The trial was the state versus Donnie Hensley, and Hugh Williams had actually been called to testify as a um, eyewitness to the homicide in the trial. Hugh had actually signed a plea deal with the prosecution which stated that if Hugh testified truthfully during the trial, he would be allowed to plead guilty to second degree murder and conspiracy to murder charges, which would result with him being sentenced to 50 years in prison. Interestingly, Michael and Latonya were only charged in connection to the homicide on the 28th of April 2005, over a year from the day of the crime, and they were also offered reduced sentences if they testified in the trial against Donnie. Michael and Latonya's arrest warrant specifically details that they had allegedly committed the offence of first-degree felony murder, or were a party thereby aiding Donnie Hensley in the perpetration of a theft in which Billy Joe Hensley was intentionally and premeditatedly killed. The couple were initially set to be tried together, but it was determined that they should be tried apart to achieve a fair trial. Hugh's trial was also set to take place later that year. Donnie's trial was of particular interest due to the horrific and gruesome details of the crime that were revealed. It's important to note that Donnie maintained his innocence in this trial, claiming that he had um, attacked his sister out of self-defense. The medical examiner that conducted the autopsy on Billy Joe's body was called to testify, and just as a forewarning, the following segment contains graphic descriptions. Billy Joe had sustained 151 separate stab wounds and cuts. The doctor testified that he was unable to determine which wound had been the fatal blow, stating that she had bled to death from one or all of the wounds. Several of the wounds sustained were serious enough to result in death. The doctor testified that he was unable to determine which wound had been the fatal blow resulting in her death, stating that it could have been due to one singular wound or as a result of all of the wounds she had sustained. Several of the wounds sustained were severe enough to have resulted in Billy Joe's death, though it was impossible to determine in what order the uh, wounds had been sustained. One of the injuries had severed one of Billy Joe's jugular veins, which, if it had been inflicted at the start of the attack, 
would have resulted in her death within minutes. However, if she had sustained that injury later on in the attack, she would have suffered for considerably longer. It's impossible to determine how long exactly Billy Joe lived during the attack, though it's clear to me that her final moments were horrifying, painful, and torturous. A serious neck wound was found, which had been caused by a blaze that had passed completely through her neck. She had also suffered a serious head wound that had penetrated through her skull and into her brain. Another wound had pierced deep into her heart, with others puncturing both her lungs and her liver. Billy Joe had wounds all over her body. The autopsy revealed that there was only a tiny amount of blood remaining inside of her cavities, which indicated that her heart had stopped either due to death or due to shock. Billy had sustained 19 stab wounds to the back of her head, 26 wounds to her neck, 46 stab wounds to her back, and 12 chest wounds alongside numerous other wounds to different parts of her body. 37 of these sustained wounds were deep enough to penetrate the cavities of her body. Notably, there were also defense wounds on both her hands in which the blade had passed through uh, her hands in it, their entirety. It was further determined that it was highly likely that the knife which had been used to pierce through her skull and into her brain was likely to have been a hunting knife. Importantly, the doctor testifies that the wounds sustained were far more than necessary than required to kill. If you wanted to kill someone, you could do so with just one or two stabs. Billy Joe had been stabbed in total 151 times on the front, back, and side, which is in the doctor's view and in, I think, everyone's view, extremely excessive. If Donnie had truly attacked in self-defense, he wouldn't have inflicted such a large multitude of stab wounds using multiple different weapons. The prosecution then rested their case. A forensics expert who specialized in fingerprints was then called to testify about their findings on the evidence taken from the crime scene. The expert told the courts that no identifiable fingerprints were found on the 30-inch uh, sword or the hunting knife that the police had recovered from the river. There were also no fingerprints recovered from the latex glove found underneath Billy Joe's body, and there was no fingerprints found on a soda can that was also found at the crime scene. Another forensics expert was called to testify about their findings um, in the evidence taken from the burn pile at Hughes' auntie's home. They told the court that the buttons and the brass fastenings found in the burn pile belonged to a specific uh, fashion brand called Black Road Blues. Though this expert was unable to determine who exactly owned the clothes as a lot of the forensic evidence had been destroyed by the fire. A third forensics expert who specialized in DNA evidence was called to testify about their findings with the DNA evidence taken from the crime scene. And they told the courts that they had retrieved DNA from blood samples taken from two bracelets that Donnie had been wearing when he'd been arrested. In particular, a DNA profile derived from the blood sample taken from Donnie's yellow bracelet was found to contain a DNA profile consistent with Billy Joe. Further, DNA tests conducted on blood taken from Donnie's black bracelet was found to have a DNA profile consistent with both Donnie's DNA and Billy Joe. Blood samples were also taken from Hugh's genes when he was arrested, and the DNA profile uh, was returned to be consistent with 
Hugh's own DNA. Swabs taken from Hugh's right hand also show DNA that was consistent with his own DNA. But swabs taken from Hugh's left hand found a DNA profile consistent not just with his own DNA, but also with Billy Joe's. In all, the trial in this case lasted just two days. The verdict was announced by the jury on the morning of the 12th of May 2005. They found Donnie Hensley guilty on all counts. A sentencing hearing was then held at 4.25pm that same day, and this is what the jury had to say. We the jury unanimously agree that the defendant, Donnie Joe Hensley, should be sentenced to prison for life without the possibility of parole. It's important to note that due to Donnie being a juvenile at the time of the homicide, he was not eligible for the death penalty under Tennessee law. The jury also recommended a second sentencing, which was life in prison with the possibility of parole after 51 years. As part of the sentence hearing, character witnesses were called to testify. The first character witness was one of Donnie's neighbours, and she had claimed to have known Donnie since he was six years old. She had told the courts that Donnie had oftentimes come over to her house with his older sister, Billy Joe. Donnie had always acted protective towards his sister, though he was also kind of a nervous child who seemed to crave attention. Another character witness, who was also a neighbour to Donnie, was also called to testify, and this character witness claimed to have known Donnie for about seven years. As with the first neighbour, Donnie had frequently visited this second neighbour on multiple occasions. He told the courts that he'd never seen Donnie angry with his sister or mistreat her in any way. Donnie had actually voluntarily mowed this neighbour's lawn on numerous occasions and had even helped to catch his runaway dog. Both the character witnesses told the courts and told the jury that they believed that Donnie should be sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 51 years. Both Michael and Latonya had agreed to a plea deal which stated that they would receive a reduced sentencing if they testified in Donnie's trial, though they were never called to testify. The criminal court judge then imposed the final sentencing for Donnie Hensley, which was life in prison without the possibility of parole. Following the closure of Donnie's trial, Hugh Williams pled guilty to second-degree murder. This would see him receive 25 years on the charge of second-degree murder and a further 25 years on the charge of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Those two sentences were set to be served consecutively, which means that the total sentence is 50 years. He would be eligible for parole after 32 years. In September of 2005, Michael and Latonya were charged with first-degree murder in connection to this case. As I mentioned, they had previously taken a plea deal, which meant that they had to testify in Donnie's trial to receive the, the reduced sentencing, but as they didn't testify and weren't called, this plea deal was void. Latonya accepted a plea deal towards the end of 2005, which reduced her charge of first-degree murder to conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, which carried a lesser sentence. And the sentence was 25 years in prison for that charge. Though, Michael continued to plead innocence on the charge of first 
first-degree murder. He didn't take the plea deal initially. In February of 2006, Michael ultimately took the plea deal and pled guilty to conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, reducing his sentence down from first-degree murder, which saw him receive the same 25 years in prison sentence. Both Michael and Latonya were eligible for parole after 7.5 years were served, or 30% of their total sentencing. In April of 2006, Donnie filed an appeal against his sentencing. The appeal was based on the fact that Donnie had been transferred to criminal court without a guardian ad litem being appointed. Further, the appeal claims that one of the prosecution's witnesses had lied in the court transfer hearing and that the court had refused to extend the plea cutoff date until after Donnie had turned 18. They believed that these points would be grounds to reduce Donnie's sentencing. The court categorically shut down the appeal, citing numerous legal reasons stating that Donnie's mother had been the guardian ad litem in the transfer hearing, and if the defence had any issue with that, then why didn't they raise a cause of concern for a conflict of interest during the transfer hearing? Further, the requirement of a guardian ad litem does not apply to the juvenile court transfer hearings. Instead, the defence's counsel is the specified means of protecting a juvenile's interest in a transfer hearing. Ultimately, the appeal was found to have no basis, and so the sentencing and verdict and judgment reached by the criminal court in the trial was upheld. But what do you think of this case? Do you think that Donnie's sentencing was fair? I personally believe that such a violent crime at such a young age over something so trivial is disturbing and I'm personally unaware of the successes and the effectiveness of a of the American rehabilitation programs. Therefore, the life in prison without the possibility of parole is an adequate and justifiable sentencing in my opinion. I also find the sentencing of the other people involved in the homicide to be adequate and sufficient. Hi folks, Edison Josh here. I also have, I, I just have one more thing with this. I, I really want to know what um, Michael and Latanya's justification for taking orders from a 16 year old um, with regards to this case was. Like, they were both adults in a good relationship, uh, might have had children, why were they taking orders from a 16 year old about a homicide? I just, you know, something doesn't make sense, make it make sense, you know what I mean? Let me know what you think down in the comment section below. And that's everything that I have for you in today's case. Make sure you subscribe to this channel by hitting that subscribe button and click that bell icon so you can be notified every time that I post a brand new true crime video. I post a new video twice weekly, once on Wednesdays and once on Sundays, both at 9pm UK time, which is GMT plus one at the moment. Don't forget to follow me over on Twitter and Instagram where I post updates to episode scheduling, sneak peeks into the cases and um, if you want to see more about who I am my handle is at it's Joshua Miles on both platforms you can find a link in the pinned comment and in the description if you have a case suggestion that you want me to cover on this channel then be sure to send it in to requestacase.com again as I said at the beginning of this video thank you all so much for your support recently it really really means a lot and I truly appreciate it and with all that being said I'll see you in the next case